You're listening to the Kelly to the Core podcast. Let's peel the apple and get to the good stuff with your host, Kelly Willenberg. Today, we're going to talk with Darshan Kolkarni of the Kolkarni Law Firm in Philadelphia. Uh, Darshan is a good friend of mine, and he and I have been friends for a number of years. We've spoken at conferences together, and um, I, I value his his opinion, and I, I value his friendship. We've worked together a few times with clients, and I think that he posted a newsletter a couple weeks ago, and it caught my eye because he talked about the 12 must-know reasons for alleged misconduct in research. So I'm going to open the floor to Darshan, let him introduce himself, and let him talk about the common reasons that he um, discussed in that newsletter because it was it was timely and it was a very good newsletter. Darshan, thank you for joining me today. Kelly, thank you so much for having me. It's, it's wonderful to be here. I know we both do podcasts. It's really wonderful to be on your podcast. Um, the the In terms of introduction, my name is Darshan Kulkarni. I am a, a uh, attorney at the Kulkarni Law Firm. Uh, I also teach at Drexel Law, where I teach uh, courses, for example, this semester I just taught on uh, food and drug law. Uh, I have actually written books with Kelly on clinical research and research misconduct associated with it. So thank you to Kelly for, for helping with that. Um, I, I have my own podcast that publishes once a week. Um, and I write extensively and talk extensively around the area of misconduct in general, compliance in general. Um, but one of the areas I focus on is obviously uh, research misconduct. In the context of a research misconduct, there are several reasons out there. We talked about the, the 12 most common ones. And uh, they are, the first is just a general lack of understanding of ethical standards. So I used to teach bioethics. And one of the reasons we used to teach that is because it's helped set up a level playing field. It lets everyone know what we expect and the expectations associated with clinical research. So the idea that you might be involved in a situation where you are playing in murky grounds, um, you need to have a general terra firma associated with clinical research, understanding what's expected. For example, um, we, we've talked about everything from the Nuremberg trials uh, to the Declaration of Helsinki and why all of those matter. And you would think that that means that we've addressed the issue of research misconduct. However, there was a recent situation I'm talking about in the last week or two weeks, where it turns out that um, someone actually went out, did research using um, artificial intelligence, and they essentially tested on 4,000 people and tried to see if the artificial intelligence could replace a researcher, a therapist, in providing uh, care to these people. And the, the, as far as I remember, they didn't actually get any IRB approval or the like. This idea of not understanding that that is research wow. is one of those basic issues. Wow. Um, <laughs> That's scary. It is very scary because they think that it's just technology and we're enabling better use of technology. Um, and that's a problem. And, and I'm not against the use of technology, but replacing without informing individuals is what I'm against. Um, but as technology gets better, as we get more research that is done ethically, we may land up in a scenario where that's okay. But keep, but informed consent is, is essential. Mm -hmm. And running that through an IRB or the like is essential. 
But don't you think part of this is is because there are so many people out there that are new to research with with the last three years and job turnover that there's just, I mean, there's a lack of of training and research all around, but you're talking about ethical training. And I don't even know where that where that starts with some institutions and some sites. No, that's exactly right. I think there are many institutions where you are thought to be a good physician, but what what is expected as a good physician may be very different from what's expected as a good researcher. And that's why setting up a basic understanding of what constitutes good research is essential. Let's take that in, and I'm I'm gonna go back further and, and we talk about this later on, but just because you in a Western country consider something to be good ethical standards may not be the same ethical standards other countries agree with or other countries use. Uh, a really good example, Kelly, as you know, is the Declaration of Helsinki, which a lot of people think is universal, that uh, everyone agrees with. But the truth is, the U.S. itself is not a signatory to the current version of the Declaration of Helsinki. So the idea, be- and, and that's one of the one of the reasons associated with it, is the idea that um, whether you can use placebos in clinical research, mm-hmm. and and the fact is that. Smart people, very, very smart people, disagree if that's appropriate or not. So what are your ethical standards? What are the ones you're going to uh, to accept and adhere to are important? And you as an institution, you as a sponsor, you need to do more than just put it as a part, a templated part of your contract. You need to actually explain what is expected. And I think that's part of the conversation. Do you want me to keep going? Because that's just number one. Yeah, that's and that's and that all those all of those rationale to me are key in in a good site or good CRO or sponsors ethical program. I think I think you're talking about a whole ethical program that people people are lacking in. But what are some of the other reasons that you see for alleged research misconduct? Another really easy one is the fact that a lot of Great research is being done in large academic institutions. And when these great for the, this great research is being done in these large academic uh, institutions, they expect the researchers to publish quickly. That publishing is what decides whether um, you will be promoted, whether you will continue to have a job, etc. Mm-hmm. So, so the need to publish quickly, publish or perish is a real thing in academic research. Yes, it is. That that is a big cause of research misconduct. I need to publish because I need to decide whether I will continue to have a job. This will decide whether I get the next grant. This will decide whether um, I can uh, get promoted. So that would be number two. Um, Number three is you, you have some very, very important researchers become nothing less than superstars or rock stars. And this this goal of being the superstar or rock star in clinical research makes you sometimes take shortcuts. And it's essential that when you are in a position where someone is um, a superstar or rock star, you need to go back to the basics. You need to know that number one, there will be um, a, a magnifying glass on the work that you do. And number two, you need to set the standard for doing research ethically. And 
just because you are famous, just because you're a rock star, you aren't exempt from it. One might argue that you are especially su uh, subject to it. And anyone who wants to be one of those researchers, rock stars, they, they will often take shortcuts and that could become a problem as well. Well, I also think that sometimes the, the, the need for, you know, kind of rock star status or the fame of being an, an important researcher, it, the researcher fails to understand their responsibilities. You know, as a guy, they fail to understand that their oversight of the study and the oversight of all their team and their, they have to make sure their team is trained and all of that impacts their, their, their gain of being, being somebody great. It, it, you're, you are what your team is in research. Exactly right. And the fact is that as the PI, you are often expected to make sure that the team is performing the way you would expect them to perform. And that is surprising to a lot of people. They sort of think, oh, the team is separate. I'm separate. As long as I do my job, everything's okay. And no, that's not true. You are responsible. You are what the FDA sees as, again, for lack of a better term, the person in charge. And the team is just helping you through the process. It's important that the team be trained, that you are trained, and you're working appropriately, closely, and in conjunction with the team to create a symbiotic uh, relationship that helps patients, that helps subjects. Um, which takes us to the next point. You talked a little bit about supervision. Supervisors and colleagues, they might land up pushing you because they, again, if you have a superstar, you have a rock star in your midst, you expect them to perform. And, and that pressure can cause you to take steps that you probably shouldn't have, steps that you probably um, should take a step back and think about. And it's important that, um, that you as a program, you as an individual are considering the, the pressures, but are not buckling under those pressures. Should we keep going? Absolutely. Um, the next one to consider is this lack of clear gui uh, guidelines. And this is kind of really important. It shows up when I do audits. It shows up when I talk to people. Um, we will often say this was a bad idea. Well, what stopped those individuals from doing it? And you see this more often at the site level, um, but you do see it every so often at the sponsor or the CRO level as well. But since the uh, the the basics are being, the, most of the bulk of the work in this context is being done at the site level, um, and medicine is often performed as an art instead of a science, what you land up with is a lot of things are given um, sort of, you, you do things the way you normally do things. What you need are clear mm -hmm. guidelines. You need clear rules. Uh, and those rules must be informed by not just what the FDA is saying, but also what might be uh, industry standards. Right, so, right. And, and again, it's not just the FDA, it might be a state board. It might be a variety of different institutions. Someone's got to take all of those rules, put them together, and then well. explain. Put those things together. Go, go ahead. Go. But don't you think that part of the part of the problem that we see in in working in the areas we work in is yes, lack of clear guidelines. But but sometimes there there's no process for th how things are being done. There's there's no policies. There's no procedures. There's exactly people are just doing the job. They just yep. they figured out how to do the job and they're doing the job. But they're yep. and if that person walks out. 
there, there, there's no way to follow up because there's nothing written down and no guidelines for anything that was happening. I see that a lot. I do see that a lot. And in fact, what I land up seeing is that the model of the, of the institution itself changes depending on who's in charge because there's no clear uh, policy. There's no mm -hmm. clear procedure that guides the process. I've been in situations where uh, sometimes it is a centralized process. Everything runs through a single individual and then the individual leaves and everyone still believes that things are working that same way. While some and they're of the not. Guys in and they, yeah, exactly, exactly. Yep. Um, yeah. And that confusion is not good for subjects, is not good for patients. Well, and if you don't have clear guidelines and you've got a lot of different um, research being done, you yep. don't have consistency. Correct. And, and your, your PIs are basically depending on other people to do things that they're not even aware that they're doing. Exactly right. And I think that's the key piece. I think that communication is a huge reason you get a research misconduct. This idea that everyone should know what I'm trying to do. And and that's not that's almost never true. This idea and, and this wasn't actually one of the 12 factors we talked about. Uh, so this is sort of a bonus because they're listening into your show. But this this lack of communication is a key component. Remember, everyone's working off of logical framework. The only problem is it's their logic. So until you communicate what logic you're following, no one else understands what you're doing. And that communication is a key component of making sure that people follow the straight and narrow. So once you have policies, you need to, for example, train on those policies, communicate those policies, mm -hmm. and you know, for example, make those make those policies accessible. There's no use in having policies that are kept in a centralized storeroom that no one can access. Policies right. need to be available, um, and that might be through something as simple as your internet. But it might be having the binders in a more uh, public location. Public location, uh -huh. right? Well, I, I, I'm always telling people, you know, you know, I work in billing compliance, and it's always, well, you you might have a coverage analysis, but if it's in locked up in a drawer and nobody has access to it, it does you no good. It becomes a liability, and that's the same thing with policies and procedures and process. One hundred percent. Which takes us to the next piece, which is um, access to resources. So policies are one of the resources you have to uh, have access to, but there are other resources. So um, you often see this with individuals or companies or smaller sites, for example, who are trying to make do. And that's a good thing to try to make do. But I think making do at a point where you are actually stressing the system to the point that it actually affects subject care. Mm -hmm. I think that is a huge problem. You, well, that you, becomes a safety issue and that, that can be detrimental to any site. Exactly right. And and that is something your CRO should be looking at. That is something your sponsor should be looking at. For example, the site initiation visit in, in trying to sort of evaluate which site should even be on there. So these are conversations you need to have up front. These are evaluations you need to be doing up front, which again goes back to training the people in in research ethics. And we talked about this early on, uh, when we talked about this lack of understanding of, of research standards. Once you have those um, standards together, you need to be training on them. And it, it, we're combining this other element we talked about, which is communication. You need to communicate what you see as your research ethics, and you then need to record what, what happened and, and the fact that you've done that training. 
more often than not, you'll be like, oh, we had this conversation earlier. Show me where it says that. Oh, we, we didn't write it down, but uh, we did have this conversation. Well, how do I know it's there? Or, or you might land up, and this happens every so often as well. I sent an email about it three months ago or three years ago. Okay, can you can you send me a copy of the email? Oh, it got archived and it's really difficult to access. So it's not accessible then. Mm -hmm. So all of those are common issues you face. And it's important that if you are doing an appropriate research misconduct, research analysis, research compliance process, um, you, you need to be looking into the training processes you have. And that goes back to the point you and I were making earlier, which is people simply don't know what they don't right. know. Right. And that comes back to ignorance. And you want to make sure that um, you are training these individuals on not only what is expected, but what is required, and not only what is required, but what is best uh, best practice. So, uh, and that ignorance should not be a excuse because um, your policy should be specifying it, your, your training should be reiterating it, and then your auditing should be catching it if it's not happening. Um, which takes us to the next portion. And I see this so often, this idea that um, people simply don't care. People will say that this is not important because I choose for it not to be important. And, well, and it's that, not my job. I hear that all the time. Well, this I didn't think that was my job. Oh, that, that's going to be the next piece we're going to talk about, which is lack of accountability. It's not my job because I choose not to do it, or I, it's not my job because um, because I never got trained on it, or whatever it is. But your, your point is exactly right. This idea that um, that it, I I just didn't bother. And one one of the things that's this is a pet peeve of mine, but you land up in a scenario where people are saying it's not my job. People are saying I didn't do it and no one's holding them responsible. And when they are being held responsible, for example, in a CAPA, in a corrective action, preventative action, what you're really doing is saying, oh, I will train you on it. Well, you can mm -hmm. give all the training in the world, but if they don't care about it, how do you fix it? Well, and I think building building that, that relationship with employees and getting people to value the organization's research, research you know, process and, and program, I mean, a lack of caring, I think some of it, you and I've had this conversation over the past few years, is because you've got people who are never in the office or they're in the office very little and there's no yep. connection. So they don't, it's, they haven't built the connection to care. Do you think that could be part of the problem? It's very much a part of the problem. And I think the fact that we're moving more and more towards these remote working scenarios um, is, is exacerbating that because you're not developing that culture across the system where you're saying that this is important to us as an organization. And I know Kelly, you and I have talked through this before mm -hmm. and we're talking about developing something about creating remote um, training programs to help create a culture of caring for your subjects. So I, I think this is gonna become a bigger issue as time goes on because post COVID people are less eager to come yes. into the workforce. They're less eager to have you look over their shoulder all the time. But that, while that gives them flexibility, which is a good thing, it does create a disconnectedness yes, from I agree. the overall process. I think that's that's going to be a bigger issue as we continue. Mm -hmm. um, and then going back to the point you were making a, a few minutes ago, this lack of accountability, this ties into your job description. 
your job description needs to specify what you're expecting this person to do. And you can't really get away um, with a catch-all at the end saying, and anything else your supervisor expects you to do. That's great, but that's a catch-all. That shouldn't be what you're depending on. Your job descriptions need to be updated on a consistent basis. You need to call out people on a consistent basis. You need to refer, for example, your job description may very well say, um, this may be updated, please refer back to uh, your role as will be updated on a consistent basis. But that type of starting from the beginning, tying their role to something that's evolving and not something that's static is going to be essential because then you can go back to the job description and say, we're holding you accountable, we're holding you responsible for these different pieces of what we think is part of your job description. Well, I think people in, in these some of these jobs, they're, you're hitting on something that's very clear to me is there is a lack of role delineation and role responsibilities yep. and research. And a lot of times it's, it's a group effort. And yep. if, if there's somebody in the group that, to your point, doesn't care, it brings the whole group down. So that lack of accountability, sometimes it's individual and sometimes it's a, it's a teamwork methodology. Yep. And, and, and I think I want to make one more piece that is uh, that stresses this point, which is we've spent a lot of time in this discussion of lack of accountability, really talking about lack of clear expectations. But there's a, a second component to that, which is if it's clear that this person knows their expectations and still ignores their expectations, they may need to be cut. They may need to be fired because That's training true. isn't going to solve that problem. And, That's true. and holding people accountable is important. Um, it's it's a it's a tough time to do that right now because it the is. truth is there aren't enough people to go around. Exactly. And there aren't enough people who are trained and and sites are popping up all over the place and they're opening up their own satellite sites. Uh, so there there is a lack of individuals who can do the job. Mm -hmm. But but your problem isn't solved by having someone who doesn't want to do their job mm -hmm. being, being in your location. That's exposing you to uh, liability, but more important, uh, it's exposing subjects to, um, lack, to uh, the lack of safety, if you will. Right. Well, and it's if if you don't have people who understand their accountability, there's usually there's a lack of best practices being done across the board. And I I think you're hitting on something. There's people today all over looking for jobs, and there's jobs open. And I yep. think there are there are some you know sites or CRO sponsors that are are hiring because there's a it's a body. And I think you've got to really look at some of the things you're talking about to build that strong compliance and ethics program and research. Otherwise, you're going to end up you're going to end up in trouble. And it it may not be now. It could be way down the road. But there, you know, I think the way you set things up and the way you manage your team and roles and responsibilities will, will lend to the right type of accountability. I think that's exactly right. I think the, the fact is, and, and uh, I don't know if we're going to get a chance to get into this, but this is why doing an initial gap analysis really helps you understand where your problems lie. Is your, is your problem the fact that there is um, just lack of clear expectations? Is your problem the fact that people don't know what they're supposed to be doing? Is there a lack of sort of oversight, uh, lack of oversight or just too much oversight? Or is it, you've got too many superstars? You need to know what the problem is before you go fix it. And, and that's what you do, Kelly. That's what I do. 
And we do it in different ways, but the idea in the end is always the same, which is we want to go in there and identify what the problems are before we start fixing them. And anyone who comes in with a uh, checklist of here's, here's everything you need to do and once you do them, you're good, is doing you a disservice because your subjects are... A, a lot of this stuff is not going to be on a checklist because there are assumptions that they know what they're doing. That, that people on site know what they're doing and that that conversation needs to happen that training needs to happen based on what you're actually seeing on the ground so we can keep going but i think for the most part we, we covered cultural differences we covered this lack of clear expectations uh going back and sort of reiterating them we talked about the lack of accountability we talked about carelessness and how some people just simply don't care we talked about some people don't know and that's ignorance we mm -hmm. talked about the lack of proper training in research ethics so the fact that people may be trained in, for example, being a good physician, but don't have a clear understanding of uh, research ethics. Additionally, I might add that every so often you might land up with uh, a person who is expected to go beyond their job. So you may have non-clinical personnel being told to make clinical decisions or report on clinical decisions, mm -hmm. which is also inappropriate. And I see that every so often. Well, um, I think that happened a lot during COVID too. And you know, it was- right. It was everybody was all hands on deck and there there was a lot of everybody just pitched in and did what they could and now i think you know to your point going back and looking at you know proactively what worked yep what didn't work and and you know a gap analysis will show you a risk assessment even will show you where were you strong where are you strong today where are you not where do you have weaknesses and I think your point about, you know, I loved in your in your newsletter, you said the best way to avoid research misconduct issues, you know, is to proactively address concerns. And I think that is key. I mean, we can end with that, but why do you feel that is so important? Because you and I both know we, we see places that are, are reluctant to address concerns. Well, I think, I think there are multiple reasons why people are reluctant to address concerns. The first reason people are most reluctant to address concerns is they want to ignore that that concern exists. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to just bury your head in the sand and pretend that this was a one-off and we can move on. The second reason is it's expensive. Yes. Everyone's straight on their budgets. And the last thing you want to do is find out a problem and then try to fix it. The next thing is, it might be your job on the line. It may be your job to have caught it in the first place. Mm -hmm. And you think that if you point out this problem, it means you failed. And I would argue the fact that you caught the problem and are trying to fix it is you actually doing your job. You are not expected to have a 100% compliance. No one expects that off of you. What they are expecting is that you're continuously improving and catching things as soon as you possibly can. And these audits and these uh, conversations um, and bringing in people to proactively address issues is how you do it. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the only way you can really show the due diligence that you're you're working, you know, to improve your site or your you know your your, your team because without looking without looking under the hood sometimes you really don't know what's going on. Very much so. Very much so. And I, I think. Um, that is what a lot of companies, and I know you've seen this, I know I've seen this, a lot of large academic institutions depend on their name and people are, <laughs> patient subjects are coming and going, oh, this is XYZ large academic institution, I can trust their research. 
you look in like an inch deep and you realize there are some serious concerns here. And though you, you need to stop hiding behind the name, right? You need to start addressing and meeting the needs of your subjects, the need of the, of the um, institution itself, but of the PIs who are working and the other professionals who are working there. Because the truth is, if you don't address it, they're all being exposed to liability. Absolutely. It puts, it puts, and, and first and foremost, it puts the patients at risk. Exactly right. And that's exactly. not good. Well, Darshan, thank you so much for joining me today. And um, you will uh, join me again, I hope. I hope so. I'd love to be on again. Well, I, I would love to have you. Thanks again for joining me today to talk about your 12 must-know reasons for alleged research misconduct. You've been listening to Kelly to the Core. I'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Kelly to the Core podcast. Subscribe to the show with your favorite podcast player directly or through our website, kellytothecore.com.